Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. Beth Emanuel is committed to proclaiming the vital gospel message of the coming kingdom of heaven. If you share our passion for this message, please support this teaching ministry and Messianic community with your prayers and financial contributions. To learn how, click the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. Beginning with the word, finally, Ephesians 6.10 indicates that our study in the epistle to the Ephesians is finally wrapping up. We have finally come to the end of the epistle, almost. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. These words, coming at the conclusion of the epistle, should remind us of Moses' final words to Israel and to Joshua, in which he frequently repeated the admonition, Be strong and courageous. In the last days of his life, Moses encouraged Israel to be strong and courageous because he knew that they were going to face war. As they went into the land of Canaan, they would face war. And he did not want them to shrink back as their fathers had done a generation earlier and abandon the land. Likewise, Paul knows that the disciples in Ephesus face war. Not a physical war of flesh and blood, but a spiritual war. Don't forget about the context in Ephesus. Remember the story of the riot? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Ephesus was a spiritual war zone because Ephesus belonged to Artemis, that is, Diana. The temple of Artemis at Ephesus was considered one of the seven wonders of the world and the many-breasted idol of Artemis at the center of the temple had fallen from the sky. When Paul's teaching led to Gentile idolaters in Ephesus abandoning Artemis and turning to the worship of the God of Israel, their defection inspired a riot in which the citizens of the city turned against the Jewish population, and several Jews were nearly killed. Paul was forced to flee and he was never able to return to Ephesus. So he knows that there is a real spiritual warfare in Ephesus. In anticipation of future conflicts, he tells the Ephesian disciples, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6.11 The ensuing passage about the armor of God brings us into some familiar territory. If you grew up in a a Bible teaching church like I did, you encountered this passage frequently. You probably heard a lot of teachings about the armor of God. Many of us from an evangelical or charismatic background may be over familiar with the passage. It's popular in teachings about spiritual warfare. That overfamiliarity can sometimes be an obstacle to reading the New Testament from a Jewish perspective. If you grew up in Messianic Judaism, on the other hand, this passage might be all new to you, but it shouldn't be. It's one of those that should be underlined and highlighted in your Bible. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Ephesians six eleven through 18 Is this a new subject? As Paul launches into this discussion on spiritual warfare and girding oneself for battle, it seems as if he is introducing a totally new topic unrelated to the preceding discussion. But that doesn't make a lot of sense. Paul's letters are never collections of random thoughts. There's always some type of internal consistent logic organizing his discussions. And he introduces this seemingly new subject with the, with the word finally, indicating that he has come to some type of conclusion based on the previous discussion. Remember that my premise on Ephesians, ever since we began our read-through of the epistle, when I said, let's read Ephesians, is that the letter is about the same thing Paul always talks about, Namely, the inclusion of Gentile disciples in the kingdom and working through the parameters of their relationship to Israel, the Torah, and the Jewish people. I think I've demonstrated over the course of the previous 14 lessons that the text of the epistle is concerned with explaining the inclusion of the Gentile disciples, their unity with Israel in Messiah, and the resulting implications for their lives. It's some of Paul's clearest teachings on the subject of what I call distinction theology. Hence, the passages about the commonwealth of Israel, the one new man, the dividing wall of partition, the spiritual temple, and so forth, and all those metaphors. It's reasonable to ask, what has spiritual warfare and the armor of God got to do with that? It seems to have nothing to do with the relationship between Jews and Gentile believers in Messiah. Although the transition sounds like an abrupt shift to a new subject, it's not. It's the same idea, the same concerns, and the same subject. Paul warns the disciples to arm themselves against the schemes of the devil. The English word devil is really a mistranslation of the Greek diabolos, which is a word that literally means accuser adversary, accuser. In other words, it's the Greek equivalent of Satan, Satan, the accuser of the brethren. The devil is Satan, is the adversary, is the accuser. What are the schemes of the devil? The schemes of the devil alludes to Genesis 3.1, where it says, now the serpent was more crafty Arum in Hebrew, more crafty than any other beast of the field. The Hebrew word translated by the English Standard Version as crafty could also be rendered as clever, shrewd, or if you prefer, scheming. 
According to Jewish lore, the serpent in the garden was possessed by Satan when he schemed to deceive Adam and Eve. Yeshua alludes to Genesis 3.1 when he warns his disciples to avoid falling into the hands of persecutors by being wise as serpents and innocent as doves. He's not referring to divine wisdom. He's referring to being clever enough to stay one step ahead of those who wanted to harm them. We could translate Genesis 3.1 to say, the serpent was more scheming than any other animal. Ephesians 6 is not the only place Paul refers to the devil's schemes. It's an idea he invokes frequently. According to Paul's idea, the schemes of Satan and his many snares take place primarily in the realm of interpersonal relationships. For example, previously in the epistle, Paul warned his readers, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. By retaining anger against one who has offended or sinned against us, we ally ourselves with Satan, who seeks to bring his accusations against that person. Paul asks us to forgive everyone before we go to sleep, so that the accuser has no basis for bringing his charges against the one who has offended us. Jewish liturgy prescribes the same exercise in the form of the so-called bedtime Shema, a recitation of the Shema intended to literally fulfill the injunction when you lie down. The recitation is prefaced with a legal declaration offering forgiveness and exoneration to anyone who has sinned against you. Master of the universe, behold, I forgive and pardon anyone who angered me or antagonized me or who sinned against me, whether relating to my body or my money or my honor or anything that belongs to me whether done accidentally or willingly, unintentionally or intentionally, or whether with words, whether with actions, whether in this present incarnation, whether in another incarnation, any person of Israel, and may no person be punished because of me. Paul says, We are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. From Paul's perspective, unforgiveness toward a person gives the devil opportunity against that person, and that's the devil's scheme. For that reason, Paul legally forgives those who sin against him, and when he does, he invokes the presence of the Messiah as a witness. 2 Corinthians 2, 10-11 says, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of the Messiah, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. It should be clear that in Paul's mind, the schemes of the devil function in the sphere of interpersonal relationships. Satan invests his energy in destroying our relationships with one another. This explains why the writings of the apostles focus on the command of love for one another and so frequently admonish us with the commandments about one to another. 
It also explains why we are so frequently and relentlessly beset with attitudes of unforgiveness and bitterness, contention and agitation, and why there are always people in the midst of a community who take an unholy delight and perverse satisfaction in stirring up trouble and fueling contention. In 1 Timothy 6, 4-5, Paul warns about fellow believers who have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Yes, that sounds familiar. I have often mused over the irony of ceaseless dissension among the disciples of Yeshua. Ostensibly, we should be the most loving people in the world in that we are the only people with an absolute mandate to love everyone, and especially a mandate to love one another as the Master loved us. Moreover, Yeshua himself says that the mark of a disciple of Yeshua that distinguishes him or her from every other people on earth is supposed to be our love for one another. So how can it be that disciples of Yeshua are beset with such inner animosity at work within our communities? It's the work of Satan. Whenever my father faced trouble in the churches he led in the form of contentious people who fought with him, fought with one another, or otherwise disrupted the peace, he would remind himself, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Before letting feelings of resentment or animosity dictate his attitude toward an individual, he would say to himself, My enemy is not Mr. So-and-so, it's the devil. The real spiritual battleground is not in demonic possession and exorcism, I do not discount those situations or question their reality, but in the way we treat one another. Solomon says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. It is almost always the case, both in the home and in the community, that the real danger comes not from outside, but from within. This is the work of Satan. And we need to recognize it for what it is, and not join his team or give him an opportunity. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12 when it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, what does it remind us of? If we are reading Ephesians from a Jewish perspective, it should remind us of the story of Jacob, who wrestled an assailant who was not of flesh or blood. Of course, a cursory reading of the Torah might lead us to conclude that the assailant Jacob wrestled was the angel of the Lord, as Jacob himself said, I have seen God face to face, but the sages object to that interpretation. The story is not about Jacob's struggle with God. It's about Jacob's struggle with Esau. Jacob has been wrestling with his twin brother since before he and Esau were born. The story of Jacob wrestling the angel comes in the context of the culmination of that narrative thread. It occurs as Jacob prepares to face off with Esau. 
He is afraid of facing his brother. He knows that Esau has come out with armed men and is on his way at that very moment to kill him. He has done what he can to prepare. He has divided his family into two camps in the hopes that one might escape the sword of Esau. He has thrown himself on God, praying for God's help. And that night, in the darkness, that's when the wrestling match takes place. So who does the angel represent? It represents Esau, and the struggle with the angel represents Jacob's struggle. On this basis, Jewish tradition identified the angel with whom Jacob wrestled as the angel of Esau, not just Esau's guardian angel, but the angelic prince appointed over the nation of Edom, that is, the nation founded by Esau. From that perspective, the idea is that Jacob needed to wrestle with and defeat the spiritual force behind Esau before he could be reconciled to Esau. And because he won the spiritual wrestling match, the battle was already over by the time he encountered Esau. Rather than killing him, Esau embraces him, and the brothers are reconciled. Jacob declares, Seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. According to this interpretation, the spiritual battle is about personal relationships. It's obvious that Paul has the story of Jacob's encounter with the angelic prince of Edom in mind when he says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. I prefer the King James Version's word principalities because it's a better translation of the idea. In Judaism, the angel with whom Jacob wrestled is called the Prince of Edom, the Sar Esav. The principalities which we struggle against are such angelic princes. The idea is derived from the book of Daniel. In that story, Daniel receives a troubling vision, which he does not understand. He prays to God, asking for the interpretation of the vision. Heaven dispatches the angel Gabriel to bring Daniel the interpretation to the vision. But it takes a long time for Gabriel to arrive. When he finally does arrive, he apologizes to Daniel for his tardiness. He says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then, behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Daniel 10.13 The prince of Persia is the angelic prince over the nation of Persia. At that point in the Daniel story, Persia had just defeated Babylon, meaning that Daniel had fallen under the power of the Persians. Gabriel had to cut through the angelic defenses of the principality of Persia to reach Daniel and to deliver the message. He would not have been able to reach Daniel if the archangel Michael, one of the chief princes, had not come to his assistance. Judaism teaches that each of the 70 nations is under the authority and administration of an angelic prince, but Israel is the Lord's portion. And that idea is derived in part from Parshat Vayigash, which counts the 70 sons of Jacob who go down into Egypt. The Torah says, all the souls of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. Genesis 46:27. An important textual variant in Deuteronomy 
correlates that number with the number of angelic princes assigned over the nations. Compare the Deuteronomy passage as it appears in the New American Standard, the English Standard, and the Greek Septuagint. First, the New American Standard version of Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. Okay, now listen to the same verse from the English Standard Version of the Bible. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. Wow. Now listen to it as the Septuagint, the Greek version, translates the same passage. When the Most High divided the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the nations according to the number of the angels of God. When the Septuagint version says, according to the number of the angels of God, it's almost certainly translating a Hebrew version of Deuteronomy, which read, according to the number of the sons of God. A version of Deuteronomy from the Dead Sea Scrolls says exactly that. But the Masoretic text of the Hebrew prefers to alter the expression sons of God to sons of Israel. Hence, the discrepancy between the New American Standard and the English Standard versions. But understand that in the days of the apostles, the reading was probably sons of God a term the Bible regularly uses to describe the angels. Moreover, the apostles regarded the Septuagint as a reliable witness, and they employed it regularly. Judaism derives the idea that humanity divides into 70 nations directly from the table of nations in Genesis 10, which charts out the descendants of Noah's three sons. According to the traditional Jewish interpretation of Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, which we just read, God assigned each of the 70 nations to an angelic prince, but he retained Israel, the 71st nation, as his own. The archangel Michael stands for Israel as his representative. The name Michael, Michael, means who is like God. Other than Michael, the other angelic princes over the nations are not exactly good angels. They are the false gods of the nations, which under Jewish thought of the first century were the idolatrous gods worshipped by the Gentiles. The idea of the 70 angelic princes presiding over the nations is also derived in part from Psalm 82, where the gods form a heavenly Sanhedrin, According to this idea, the Sanhedrin on earth, with 70 members, corresponds to the heavenly Sanhedrin, just as the temple on earth is a shadow and reflection of the heavenly angelic sanctuary. 
This is the older ancient Near East meaning of Psalm 82, in which God is depicted rebuking the angelic principalities for the injustices that they have perpetrated upon the nations. Let me read the psalm to you. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They, the gods, have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. At the conclusion of the psalm, the Lord removes the corrupt administration of false gods and takes over the nations himself. He takes the nations as his inheritance, elevating them to a status originally unique to Israel, Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. The psalm predicts a regime change in which the authority over the nations is transferred from the false gods over to the Lord. This worldview also explains how it is that Satan has possession over the nations and was able to offer them to Yeshua in the third temptation. Matthew 4, 8 and 9 says, Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Paul speaks about the 70 angelic princes over the nations when he warns his readers that they are in a struggle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's talking about the spiritual powers over the Gentile nations. This is also why he urges the Ephesians to be strong and Put on the armor of God. He knows that the spiritual powers over the nations are not happy with the defection of the Gentile disciples, and they are going to make war against them, to trick them, to trap them, to deceive them, to turn them against one another, and especially to turn them against the Jewish people. Paul has prophetically foreseen a coming apostasy. Earlier in his career, not long after he had to flee Ephesus, he arranged a rendezvous with the elders of the Yeshua communities in Ephesus. Since it was impossible for him to go to Ephesus, he arranged the meeting in nearby Miletus. The elders of the Ephesian communities made the trip to meet with him, and he bade them farewell. He knew, through prophecy, that he would never again see them. He warned them about a coming spiritual battle that would take place in their communities and an apostasy which would draw disciples away. Acts 20 verses 29 through 31. He says to the Ephesian elders, I know that after my departure, 
fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. It should now be clear that this discussion relates directly to the earlier content in the epistle to the Ephesians. It's not just some random thoughts at the end of the letter. It's really the whole point of the letter. As Paul persuades Gentiles in the ancient world to abandon their allegiance to their idolatrous gods and to cast their allegiance with the God of Israel, he incurs the displeasure of the idolatrous gods. The Gentile disciples are contested property. The gods of the nations claim that they belong to them under the authority of the kingdom of darkness. But God is redeeming them, stealing them away from the false gods and adding them to his own portion. The same thing happened in the story of Israel's redemption from Egypt. God used the redemption of Israel as a judgment against all the gods of Egypt and to establish his reputation among the nations. This is made explicitly clear in the literal reading of the Exodus narratives. God says that he's redeeming Israel so that they will know my name, so the Egyptians will know my name, and so forth, and so the nations will know my name. And he says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Paul teaches that the redemption of Israel was merely a first step in God's war with the false gods. Through the work of the Messiah, the Lord now redeems the nations too, stealing them away from the false gods. Paul believes that this was, a, this was God's mysterious purpose and sovereign plan for world domination from the beginning. According to Paul, God uses the salvation of the Gentile disciples to flaunt his wisdom and sovereign power before the principalities, rulers, and authorities in heavenly realms. Listen to what he already said back in Ephesians 3, 8-12. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of the Messiah and to bring to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the assembly of Yeshua, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in the Messiah, Yeshua, our master, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Paul refers to this cosmic plot twist as the mystery of the gospel. It's the salvation of the whole world. For the sake of this mystery, Paul was willing to endure humiliation and imprisonment. And that's part of the spiritual war too. Satan's forces are doing everything they can to hold on to their Gentiles. The spiritual forces to whom the nations belong are reluctant to let their property go. So the devil schemes about how to best attack the disciples. Paul believes there is a spiritual war going on between the powers of darkness over the nations and the powers 
of heaven. This is why he told the Gentile disciples in Ephesus, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5.8 From this we learn that the spiritual warfare is a real thing. It happens here at Beth Emanuel all the time. We should be more careful about whose side we are on in this spiritual battle. When we raise accusations against our brothers and sisters or against the community or stir up trouble and dissension, we are speaking on behalf of the devil and granting him opportunity. And that's tragic. I believe that Beth Emanuel has a significance on a spiritual scale that we cannot comprehend. If the Bible is true, and Yeshua is the Messiah, and the kingdom of heaven is real, then our little community is part of something and pioneering something with huge spiritual ramifications. This is one of the few places, the few to only places in the world where distinction theology is happening in a practical outworking. This entire venture reverses the devil's own schemes and lies about the Torah, replacement theology, and slander about the Jewish people. Beth Emanuel defies the dogma that insists the Torah is canceled, that Gentiles replace Jews, and that the church replaces Israel. Beth Emanuel also defies the practical sensibility which would separate Jewish disciples and Gentile disciples into different religious systems. For all of these reasons, our community is, and always has been, at the epicenter of an intense and relentless spiritual battle. It's not a battle against flesh and blood. That's part of the deception. That's Satan's scheme. When he turns us against one another, he wins. The battle is the battle is against the rulers, against the principalities, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So make sure you are on the right side. Take on my yoke. And learn from it And find rest for your soul